Welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The ensuing show will change, transform, and otherwise alter you. Good luck. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Today, we're here to talk about something that you very well may never get to see, something that very well could have served as both a correction and a new beginning. Folks, The Losers are here to discuss The Dark Tower. Glenn Mazzara's lost pilot for a series that aimed to tell the entirety of King's Dark Tower saga on screen. Unfortunately, due to numerous circumstances of note, including Game of Thrones trash final season, the underperformance of It Chapter 2 and Doctor Sleep, not to mention 2017's The Dark Tower, and the IP shininess of Amazon's Wheel of Time and Lord of Rings series, which are currently in development and are very expensive, the pilot was never aired and the series was axed. And as Mazzara told us in a sprawling two-hour interview that you can hear right now on our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Barons. It is done. There is no saving this iteration of the Dark Tower. The rights have changed hands. And that's too bad because as we're as we're about to lay out in this episode, <laughs> it was pretty good. And uh, we're grateful that he allowed the scant few of us the opportunity to view it. And we hope one day that uh, the general public gets to view it as well. Uh, What we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the entirety of the Dark Tower pilot, which begins with the events of Wizard and Glass, uh, while offering some of our own commentary on what we saw. We'd recommend you listen to this before you listen to our interview with Glenn Mazzara, as he essentially walks us through his grand vision for the entire series, not just where the first season would go, but where the series as a whole would. It's gripping stuff. Now let's begin by introducing ourselves. My name is Rock and Randall Colburn, and I'm joined firstly by Mike Rothman. Say hi, Mike, and tell us what were your thoughts heading into the pilot and what were they like heading out of it? You know, it's it's strange because we had heard so many different conflicting reports over the years, you know, and this all started from a project that we heard was going to be like an offshoot spinoff of the movie. So my Mm -hmm. expectations were really low. And then when I, you know, we found out that it was actually going to be a total, you know, reboot, total reimagining, they were high. And then, you know, we got reports trickling in through our Facebook or Instagram for people that actually saw it through, I guess, the test pilot program on Amazon. They're like, well, it wasn't, you know, that good. And so my, you know, my feelings, my, (laughs) my expectations were even lower. And then we got to finally watch it. And fuck, it's just this it, that right afterwards. I just was like, I want more. I want like eight more yeah. episodes of this right now. Like, give it to me. So there, are, that's my uh, capsule, you know, prelude. But. And mine is very, very similar. Justo, how about you? Hey, this is Justin Bezos Gerber, <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> the villain. The villain, you know, um, I shouldn't be. I should, I should not be using that name because I, <laughs> I too um, like this pilot a lot I've actually I've watched it twice and the second time around did not feel like a chore you know it was just as enjoyable yeah if not more so than the first go around and I wasn't necessarily expecting that 
Um, same roller coaster ride that Mike was on, honestly, for the last few years. You know, we heard this was supposed to be kind of a, an in-between film project based on the Ron Howard, Goldsman, whatever the <laughs> fuck they were going to try to do with that monstrosity. Or lobstrosity, I'd rather have those. Yeah. And um, then, you know, we saw some set photos trickling in, and I just kind of thought it looked a little cheap. But I, I don't know when we became the society, and I include myself in part of this, where we look at set photos and make whole judgments on TV shows <laughs> and movies. Like, why? Like, we're taking, like, these paparazzi iPhone 9 illegal photos and saying, ah, this is going to suck. You know, it's, yeah, but it's then unfair you get, on my like, part. You know, it's unfair on my part. But I think a lot of it comes from, I don't know, our own deep-held biases. Because I know, like, when the Mandalorian set photos were leaked, like, people were losing their fucking shit. Like, this could be the best thing ever. And I think it's just kind of like, I think we're, we're I think for, like, Mandalorian fans, they were sort of preparing themselves for something great. And with Dark Tower, because I think what we've been through with the 2017 movie, but also sort of, I don't know, um, Amazon series in general, which haven't been that good. And also just, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of bad Stephen King adaptations. I think we sort of prepared ourselves for it to be bad which uh so i think maybe that we couch that in the in the set photos kind of thing you know like unless yeah. it was the most amazing set we've ever seen in our lives we're like well this is gonna suck it's, it, was, um, it, it was just all green screen i've been pretty funny yeah. too it's like oh, look at this bullshit against the green screen but long, long story short i was like i talked i talked to mike and, and mac a lot about this because i was supposed to be on the Mazer episode and so much for that prep thank you construction um, but the Crimson King on your roof. I got, I'm not kidding. The Crimson <laughs> King's trying to break in. He heard, he heard I got footage of uh, the Amazon pilot. It's a drill and bombs. But I was telling them, I, I would say for like the first five or 10 minutes, it really felt surreal for a number of reasons. You know, one mm-hmm. is that we were seeing it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two is that like maybe a couple handful worth of people have ever seen this and are ever going to see it. You know, and that kind of added yeah. to it as well. It was just a very strange experience that, you know, you're really enjoying the pilot, but at the same time, it's kind of this hint of sadness because yeah. when the episode ends, that is it. You know what it yeah. reminded me of, Justin? It reminded me of, um, so growing up, I, I you know, I, I love action figures and I love toys. It reminded me of when I would have these dreams at, that I would be at Toys R Us or like KB and they would have like an action figure line for something that just doesn't exist in real life. Like I'd, I'd, I'd be able to see like, oh my, well now they do, but like I'd see like Doc Brown and Marty and like a playable DeLorean and I'd wake up and I'd be like, God, why doesn't that exist? I'd be so upset. And it's kind of <laughs> reminds me of that feeling of like, all right, well I got a glimpse of something and it doesn't really exist. Like nope. it's, this exists, but it doesn't though. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this weird sort of uncanny valley feeling that i yeah that's the only way i could describe it but well it's crazy too because clearly so much money went into this oh and like, i know yeah. the scope of it is huge so it, it it adds to that dissonance i know what you guys are saying mac say hello and and your experience uh, with this pilot hi this is this is mac the kissing gerber um <laughs> <laughs> i uh only one can kiss uh, and the other mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ultimately I don't, I just feel like my hopes and dreams for the pilots coming into it were just all over the place and very dashed. But I will say I had a lot of confidence in Amazon because I'm a big fan of a lot of Amazon shows and they've seen, and they they were really, you know, leaning on the fantasy stuff lately. And I just thought, well, you know, this, this could be good. You know, I thought the cast looked pretty interesting so, you know, when I heard that it was getting couched and it wasn't going to happen, we weren't going to see it. I was pretty frustrated. Um, you know, we've got like, like you, got, you all said, we saw those set photos and stuff. But even some of those, I was kind of like, 
it looks like Midworld, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't, yeah. it didn't, didn't look too bad, you know, it looked like they were on the right track. So when, when, uh, yeah, when we, when we got the episode, I was thrilled. And, um, but I, the same thing Justin was saying, I, there were just moments that we'll talk about when we get into it, but there are moments in it that I just thought, ah, oh, man, I can't believe I'm seeing this like yeah. <laughs> on the screen. And it would have been really cool to had it continued for sure. I think, uh, King heads would just, <laughs> Well, would have loved to see it. At least the pilot, you know what I mean. But what uh, Amazon shows do you like besides Bosch? <laughs> uh, big fan of the Expanse that has uh, oh, yeah. new, uh, new life. Did that sta- but did that start on Amazon? It didn't start, but I'll tell you what. So it doesn't count. Oh, hey, I'm a. I was a big uh, Ma- uh, Maisel head. Oh yeah, Maisel. Not Here's for me. The thing about Amazon versus something like AMC, right? Amazon gives the producers money. Yeah. Like you'll never hear, like you've heard all these nightmare stories from Mad Men, from Walking Dead about well, how AMC skimps. Yeah, and yeah, Amazon I, will give you whatever you want. I would say check out the show called The Patriot. Only two yeah. seasons. Oh yeah, Patriot kind of just ends, but it's really good. Like yeah, I, like no business being as good as it is. It's really fun. Um, um, I like well, cool. a lot of the selections on Amazon that you can get, you know, uh, sometimes I get my, you know, my chocolate paydays on there. Sometimes you get some really good, you know, specials on Blu-rays, you know, Hey, what a, um, what I bought a two great garbage cans. <laughs> I've got two garbage cans right here. Hold on a second. It's, um, yeah. Sterlite, two great white garbage cans. Oh, awesome. two uh, garbage cans. Ooh la la. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they gave me. I thought I was ordering just one because yeah. it was so cheap. Turned out to be two. I was thrilled. Thank I like you, when you. I like when you Thank buy you something on Amazon and it recommends you to get something else. And and because I have an impulse buying aspect of me, it really kind of tackles that gene. And I guess that's kind of how the the company really capitalizes on uh, you know everyone across the world. You know, it's like well, if you, a real if you buy this, shop, you know, you'll buy that. It is a mom and pop shop because it's it's feeding to the mom and pops across the world. So I'm, it's every you mom know, and you pop. don't need to buy garbage cans. Just use a box or something. Yeah, I know. I was supposed to use a, I should have gone down the street and just picked up a, something off the, in the alleyway or something. Yeah, it has like bed bugs in it and you just oh, bring gosh. all this like trash in I, your you house. Know, hey, <laughs> like the mattress getting, from Hellraiser Hel- 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 2. To, <laughs> to the, the real, the real Amazon. What are that show that Justin... You and I watched the show on Prima. It, it was animated with Bob Odenkirk. Oh yeah, the BoJack oh, Horseman show. No, no, Undone. <laughs> not, not BoJack. Well, wasn't it? Wasn't it like a no. spin, the same you're, creator? Undone. 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 It's you're thinking about, you're thinking really about good, yeah. sad horses. I always Bojack hear about like all these great too. shows on on Undone. Amazon, and I've Homecoming. I've, first season of Homecoming, I think. Homecoming. Oh, yeah, first, first season, season was good. never watched Homecoming. Yeah, I couldn't. Get I on think it. you'd like it, Mike. I don't honestly. I think this is the only Amazon show I've ever watched. Wow. Well, today we're here to talk about Homecoming season one, <laughs> scene by scene. Yeah. Uh, Sam Esmail, Julia Roberts. Uh. <laughs> so, so yeah, let's kind of hop into it. Uh, Dark Tower. It's it begins. the The neat thing about it is that it sort of combines the beginning of the first Gunslinger book with uh, Wizard and Glass. And Wizard and Glass, I, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're some kind of tower head. So uh, Wizard and Glass is a book that the majority of the book is devoted to a, a story of Roland's uh, teen years, his first love, and an experience he had in a town called Hambury uh, with some of his good friends. And this experience went on to impact the rest of his entire life. And um. So basically we begin and it opens with sort of the iconic quote that uh, opens the gunslinger, which is uh, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. And we are brought uh, basically into this vast, open, dusty desert um, and uh, with Roland 
uh, with a you know mask over the bottom of his face, sitting astride his horse, and we get this sort of 360 degree panorama that shows sort of the vastness of this desert and the fact that there is no civilization anywhere near him. And I think that sort of sets the stage for the scope of we mentioned it already uh, the scope of this of this project, which it doesn't feel like it was made on a soundstage. You know no. what I mean? This is out in the wilderness, and that's what's first off one of the most striking things. Mike, what are you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say within three minutes. I mean, I counted all these different shots. You get a desert, you get a sandstorm, you get valleys, you get a mountain range, you get Mm -hmm. what appears to be the Salton Sea, and then you get the beam. And this is all before you even get to the Dark Tower logo. I mean, it's pretty, they make a pretty concerted effort to show you that this is a different world, you know? Yeah. Um, I did want to mention that the crew real quick, just to, yeah. to put it out there, you know, so this is directed by Stephen Hopkins, which I actually didn't realize until I just looked oh, it up during I the, the notes. And as you know, from uh, Halloween's podcast, he's the director of Nightmare on Elm Street five, the dream child. Oh, wow. How um, weird. I didn't know that. And he also did predator two and he also did judgment night and blown away, which we've uh, talked multiple times on our text threads for some reason. Um, and, but <laughs> I think, what's, but, but I think the two, the two things that are, I think are really in, important, uh, for what he does with the Dark Tower here is the fact that he directed The Ghost in the Darkness oh, yeah. and uh, Lost oh, in Space. It. And those two movies, I mean, say what you will, but Lost in Space is not really a successful movie for the most part. I think a lot of it is, I think it's actually kind of a boring movie. But a hard the, tone to capture years later. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think what, in terms of the range of, of, of atmospheres and, and, and terrain, I think those two films and the patience of the ghost in the darkness, like they really do show up in this pilot. Yeah. Um, and it's the same cinematographer too, that he usually works with is, which is Peter Levy. And so if you're a fan of those movies, then you might be a fan of this or even uh, not, because you know. I'm not a fan of a lot of those movies. Yeah. Like this. <laughs> yeah. I but, I do, that, I, but I know what you mean, especially with ghosts in the darkness and yeah. lost in space, because especially because this is a world that sort of combines like the rustic outdoors yeah. with a future, like a sort of, you know, um, uh, steampunk futuristic sort of vibe that I think mashing those two together is actually kind of an interesting way to look at the world that he's created here. Uh, Justin, what were you going to say? Mike, you mentioned patience and I a hundred percent agree with that because this is a very, even though there's a lot happening in this pilot, it's tough because mm-hmm. it's not one of these things where we can say, trust me, everybody, when you see it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Like mm-hmm. we're really trying yeah. to convey something <laughs> that they'll never see, but a lot happens, but it is extremely patient. Yeah. And there's a lot of show and, and don't tell, which I also mm-hmm. appreciate a lot because this really could have just relied on my name's Roland DeShane. <laughs> I've been in the desert yeah, for two weeks. You know, that, it doesn't do it. That's I love the it. best thing about it. We were talking about this the other day. It was the whole, you know, it, it's got the wire slash GOT feel where you're, they just drop you in it and mm-hmm. you need to catch up. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't spend a lot of time. I don't think they they say any of the Cotet's name during the they episode. Don't. You know what I mean? Like you were just thrown into it, and then you know, of course, over the episodes, you would have you know, you know, by the end, you'd, you everybody knows you know Barksdale's name. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, it, I feel like that would have been the same thing. I think you would have been so engrossed that you know everybody, you know the ins and outs, and you're ready for the next season. Yeah. So, yeah. Like you guys said, it's a pretty wordless beginning for a while. Uh, We, you know, once we're in the desert, we see Roland camping out with his horse. Uh, He's sitting over a fire at night. And then that's when we see the beam above him. But we don't know what that is. Right. It's just this kind of beautiful, uh, starry sort of Milky Way kind of um, thing that's carving through the sky. And uh, yeah. And so Roland sees that and it's he's very taken with it. And then he's back the next day on his horse. There's a sandstorm. It's overwhelming. And then the sandstorm's over. And then he thinks he sees 
sees the man in black. Um, and but then the the figure that he sees is the man in black turns around and it has the head of a vulture. It's a very yes. striking kind of moment. <laughs> Did you guys think because Roland just sort of shrugs that off, is it, which was a kind of a weird reaction to me. Uh, did you guys think that was just a, a you know, a delirium induced vision or no. was it really Martin who was fucking with him? No, I think it's just one of the Tahin. Yeah, that's yeah, what I thought. That, that oh, was my thing. I thought it was one the of the Cantoy. Faces, yeah. yeah. And that Cantoy, it would, yeah. and that he just scared him off. And I thought I thought as episodes would go on, we would see more of those kinds of creatures. Um, I, I but, loved that. And you know, maybe it was Martin, about. but again, we won't know. We won't yeah. ever know. We should that's have what I'm talking Lynn. about, though, where it does a good job of saying in the first three minutes without any words, mm-hmm. this is not a typical Western. Yeah. Like this is not somebody tr- trying to track somebody this down. This is not your daddy's Western. This is not your grandpappy's <laughs> Western even, you know? Well, it touches and, on the uh, horror. Yeah. It, it introduces a kind of a horror element as well, mm-hmm. which I think is important. Mm-hmm. And something that I was surprised to find in this episode was that there are moments of horror. Uh, and so it really does distinguish itself from, you know, that this is a Western, which probably a lot of people like might be put off by that because Western's not, you know, the most popular genre these days. I know like when I watched Deadwood for the first time, I was really hesitant because it was a Western. And then I Obviously, you watch it and it's so much more than that. And I think that's what uh, Glenn was trying to do here uh, with that moment in specific. Uh, We hear a lot of like voices uh, that are going through his head, especially as Roland begins essentially dying of thirst. He's running out of water. Uh, There's no places. There's no shelter anywhere. And we hear lines like the wheel of Ka has spun. We hear the world has moved on. Remember the face of your father. These are obviously um, iconic lines from the text, uh, but they're sort of running through his head and he basically passes out uh, alongside his horse. And that's when we get the title card, uh, which, you know, says the Dark Tower. And something that uh, Glenn tells us in our interview, which you should listen to, um, is that there's these runes that are below the title card. And if you actually, if you're somebody who knows how to read these specific runes, it actually spells out the name of the title of the episode, which is The Gunslinger. Uh, Although that's not made explicit. So, yeah. yeah. Very cool. It was going to be a running thing as they continued on each episode, mm-hmm. and that would be something for the fans to, to decipher. Yeah. yeah, lots of fan stuff here. Uh, so we cut to, after the credits, we cut to uh, Gilead. And um, it's essentially framed as like an industrial city by the water. Lots of hills, lots of stone, lots of greenery, but also factories that are, you know, chugging out a lot of smoke. And, uh, you know, it's a really well-realized sort of um, and beautiful city by the sea that also has a grittiness to it that, you know, very much characterizes it as a city. Uh, We cut to Gabrielle, who uh, is Roland's mother. She's a nurse and uh, basically is talking to Vinay, character from the text, and um, is asking after both Stephen, her husband, and Roland, her son. They're both off, you know, doing their thing. And uh, Vinay, well, not doing their thing. Uh, (laughs) They're out there. They're doing too much. Roland. (laughs) Roland is basically in pursuit, and we'll talk more about what actually he is in pursuit of, but she's worried about him because he's young, and uh, her husband is basically out, you know, basically uh, fighting John Farson and his bandits who are wreaking havoc across uh, the... Yeah, in Crescia specifically uh, throughout the entirety of Midworld. And there's a mention that Stephen, I think he uses the word detained, but then um, when we cut to him, basically Stephen is riding through this war-torn town, fires, dead bodies. There's a dead dog, which I didn't appreciate, Um, (laughs) although its fur looked immaculate. So I think there was just a dog and they're like, play dead. Um, So I think they really killed a dog. It's Amazon money. (laughs) Yeah, they they took a page from Milo Notice. Uh, hey, hey, let's not bring up that very, I know, very I know. traumatic story. Uh, they brought I, in the bear, and that was it. We so, can only hope the the dog was rabid. 
So there, in that scene with in that scene with Gabrielle, th- that's Court on the bed, right? That's what I thought. Right? Oh, I thought, see, I didn't catch that because he's got his yeah. eye missing, which was I, I figured was you know you know. But again, Mike, that's a great example of. I'm sure we would have, and audiences who weren't familiar with oh, the story would have yeah. found that out. That's a great seed you plant there. Well, it's wow. a, the difference, between, and we talk about this with the with Glenn is that it's the difference between like you know like the Easter egg where you kind of zoom in on it versus something that actually informs and builds the world around it. You know, like those yeah. are important Easter eggs. Like to the have. dead dog wasn't just Cujo. <laughs> oh God! Could you uh, if you look, if you, if you, you do freeze frame, if you look careful, it's a Saint Bernard. <laughs> But no, you're, this is Camber Ranch. Uh, but you guys are 100% right, and that blows my mind, because as somebody who you know has read The Dark Tower and is rereading Wizard and Glass right now, even with my familiarity, I didn't fully catch that that was supposed to be court, but now it makes all the sense in the world, yeah. especially because in this episode, they do mention um, that Roland squared off against court mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. hurt him. But again, so go ahead, Justin. Let's say, Randall, the great thing, once again, about that is this isn't one of those shows that if you don't know that's court, then you're not going to like the episode. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I feel like a lot of other IP hinges so much mm-hmm. on that. And it's just a seed that's been planted. So well, that's what, yeah. I mean, Mac mentioned Game of Thrones earlier. And I just, that's the perfect alignment with this and the perfect comp because, you know, I had never read Game of Thrones before. And I remember Fleer just being like, watch it. And he like took my head and held it in his arms. And he was just like, you know, you got to watch this pilot. And, and I just was like, eh, I don't really, I'm not big on fantasy. And I was, I was really into it. And then after reading up all the Wikipedia stuff, I realized like how much shit I missed in season one. Mm-hmm. But really, in hindsight, it didn't matter. You know, I still enjoyed yeah. it. I still watched exactly. season one and I liked it. And I think that was what probably would have been the case for the Dark Tower, you know? Um, yeah. I really don't think that uh, any of this hinges on a familiarity with any of like the three books that came before it, you know, if we're talking Wizard and Glass or, or anything else. And that's one of its biggest strengths. So so we're in Crescia. We see um, Stephen basically stumbles upon and Stephen is played by Jerome Flynn, who's speaking of Game of Thrones. You might recognize as Braun, the uh, sellsword. Very good so actor. Good. So good. And he's he's very good here as Stephen Deshane, I think. Um, and these this woman comes out with her son. They're all kind of, you know, there's fires everywhere. It's very scary. And she basically says, where were you? Uh, you people were supposed to stop this. So there is this sense that Farson and his people are winning and Stephen and the gunslingers who are essentially the, you know, the protectors of this land are failing. And um, so we cut back to Roland, who is in the back of a wagon of basically a junk collector. And um, they don't name him in the episode that I remember, but Glenn called him Brown. So mm-hmm. I think we should just go with that name. Um, we hear some more voices in his head. Uh, one of them is Martin. What have you done to her? And then also, you shouldn't see me like this in the in Roland's mother's voice. So clearly, uh, you know, the man in black is probably this Martin character is the um, is the. Uh, uh, implication and also, um, you know, something happened between her and Martin that is haunting Roland. Um, so he's in the back of the Junker's wagon and his horse is dead b- beside him, covered in maggots. Very gross. Um, and they basically this guy brings him to his, you know, junk lair <laughs> where there is much junk. Yeah. And he has a crow that, uh, you know, I think uh, crows are obviously a, a big um uh, part of the Stephen King world. Justo, what do you got to say? I think that the person in the wagon addressed or referred to as Brown is actually Court. Uh, not Court. Um, Mac, is his name? What's his name in the very beginning of the, of the Gunslinger book? It, it's the person who's got the crow. I think it is Brown. Brown and Zoltan, I think. Oh, then oh, there you go. I think that's why okay. I got Court Zoltan yeah. the bird. I'm sorry. Yeah. I got Court mixed yeah. up with his teacher. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I have, is, I'll, I'll say this for this entire section in this scene. You know, we've talked about this on this podcast for ages and we 
specifically talked about it when we were reviewing the Dark Tower movie back in, uh, oh, what, 10 years ago in 2017, um, that, you know, this series needs like a visionary director, right? Like it needs someone like a George Miller. It needed someone that could kind of come in and really create a new world. Right. And I, I just think even just like what well, I think we're at this point, we're like probably like eight minutes, 10 minutes into this, the you know, in this pilot. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense that like there is a vision here, you know, and like you mentioned steampunk, Randall, and that is so dead on. Like it really does feel like I love the fact that like we're in this like yesteryear, but also post-apocalyptic sort of world. I mean, like yeah. even going but into this also, lair, there's like a, yeah. it looks like we're going into like an old warship, you know. Right. Then, but it's also not cringe steampunk like. People no. aren't wearing like not everybody's wearing corsets or whatever, you know. No, it's like no, not, no, 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 no. Yeah. It's not stylish. It's it's just it's like anachronistic in a really cool way. Yeah. Like so, very George Miller, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Things have broken down and they're trying to they they, they literally say the world has moved on just like the book and they're trying mm-hmm. to figure things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um forgive me for not remember I haven't read the first gunslinger in a really long time. Well, so I'm hoping I, I, did, so. I got it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, so I, please I, I, please I correct me if I'm just like I don't know who this person is. Um I do remember Zoltan the bird though. And so yeah. uh but he says beans beans musical fruit the more you eat the more you toot very funny. Uh, good joke. <laughs> Um, so we get a little bit Straight of humor. Yeah, 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 we get a little bit of humor. Um, Brown notices he's a gunslinger. Um, so we get sort of a little bit of character background here. The idea that Roland is this vaunted title of gunslinger. He has the guns that are specifically made for gunslingers. They have certain etchings on them. And uh, he says, you're from uh, Gilead. And basically is like, you're too young to be a gunslinger. So we get some kind of easy details, I think, to help round out who Roland is and also connect him to the characters that we met in Gilead, his parents. So, um, um, uh, Brown remembers uh, seeing the man in black, but, and I love this and we'll talk more about this uh, once we talk more about Martin, but he basically describes the man in black as somebody who he can't remember his face. He says he describes him as like something from the back of a dream. And, uh, and he tells him basically that the man in black is heading for Hambury, which is a nearby town and says, there's no love for gunslingers there. Um, and then there's sort of this moment where, and you guys can correct me if this is in the book where Roland thinks the crow itself might be, uh, Martin and there's kind of this extended sequence. Mac, what do you got? Uh, I don't think mm. in the book it's it's laid out like that that he thinks of the crow as Martin, but I like I like what they did in this. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say uh, where where I was kind of watching it and like, okay, this is interesting. This is interesting. The beam was cool, but where I was kind of in was the scene where Brown's trying to recall Martin, and mm-hmm. right behind him is just like a really blurred silhouette of martin yeah. just like standing there and you it, you can't see him you can't tell what he is but it's like it's just it's subtle they it's not done for a scare it's not a jump mm-hmm. scare and it, i just i love that and i was just like this is this is the feel of the man in black that i mm-hmm. want i want yeah. to be like constantly like never it's you're like you're your, your thirst is never quenched you know what yeah. i mean like you're always <laughs> like it's always just like on the precipice of like not quite being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you got, Justin? Well, two things on top of that is there's definitely a recurring motif of somebody either thinking about the man in black mm-hmm. or talking about the man in black and then being, like you said, kind of out of focus in the background. Yeah. In yeah. some ways, the way he presents himself in the background, it kind of recalled the best aspects of the Babadook. Yeah. Mm. Oh, and yeah. Kind of looking across the way at the Babadook kind of hanging on the coat rack, it's very similar to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I dig that. And... Yeah, we, let's, we can keep going with that. But yeah, I just love the presentation and how he's presented. It's kind of this just out of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like just when people think that maybe he's there, he's not 
and then he's gone or, may, they or get maybe really he was never there it. at all you know because at one mm-hmm. point i think there's even like a doorway and you see you just think it's a doorway but it's not it's actually him and he like mm-hmm. turns or something and it's really chilling yeah it, cool. it, that, it's like the greatest use of peripheral horror like you were, bobby duke is a good comp i like that yeah yeah so when roland re-enters the you know the junk shop brown is suddenly speaking as if he's possessed um he says things like i'll meet you in the land of the bones gunslinger and uh and then you realize that basically brown is roasting his own arm over a fire which clearly is you know <laughs> something that uh he's being forced to do and and then basically there's this really cool fight scene um that they work in where his arm is on fire the entire time as they're struggling roland pulls his gun he doesn't want to kill him you can tell uh because he senses that this is a man who is possessed but uh basically brown the possessed Brown takes the gun, brings it under his chin and uh, pulls the trigger. So basically uh, blows his brains out. And um, Roland is very, you know, disturbed and shocked by this, as you might imagine. Um, Blood sprays all over the, the, the camera, the lens, yeah. <laughs> the lens, which is kind of cool. I thought it was very video game esque. Yeah, like very much so. So we move back. We cut back to Gilead and uh, basically Stephen returns to with the survivors and Gabrielle reveals that she wants to go after Roland herself. Stephen won't let her, uh, says that others are looking for him. So we we know that there is other gunslingers who are basically, you know, Roland's friends and they're on the look for him. So cut to Cuthbert, Elaine, Jamie DeCurry. And who's the other one? I know they're not named, but I, who's the other gunslinger? Elaine, Cuthbert, Jamie and who am I forgetting? There's one other. I, 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 you guys had me on that. I, I, I mean, I knew Cuthbert and Elaine because oh. you see the lookout. So mm-hmm. you knew that was Cuthbert. And then Elaine, Jamie, Cuthbert. No. Well, here's the thing. In the book, in Wizard and Glass, it's just the three friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I know. Just and there's, there's four or five in this, so we have to figure, yeah. we have to figure this out. Yeah, but there's again, no... They'll, they'll name them, so... Right. right. At least in Wizard and Glass, it's just, just Cuthbert and Elaine. Here, um, I just know Jamie because I remember reading it somewhere that Jamie was involved, and uh, it might be on IMDb, but, uh, but yeah, so if we stumble upon that, we'll let you know. But basically, I kind of love this. We get this kind of hard rock and Western theme, and of course, I thought of our boy W.G. Snuffy Walden. Uh, obviously, he didn't do the score here, but this sort of hard-driving... Uh, cow poking electric guitar that was oh. playing to introduce those characters uh, very much felt um, standian to me. I have uh, the, Mike, I have the fourth name, Eileen. Eileen Ritter. Eileen. So okay. apparently, it's Eileen is the niece of Court and wishes to be a female gunslinger, and she is credited here in. Um, it's okay, but a, that's not from the book. So there you go. Right. Not, yeah, that's no, a new no, character. So it's separate. Yeah. Yeah. But that's cool. I knew I, I wasn't. Was... A, I knew I wasn't a fucking moron. Wanted, well, no, you're not a fucking <laughs> moron. No, it's because I think they really wanted to shake up some of the diversity here and like the dad, you know, some more gender and stuff. Well, so that, that, I think that's cool. I mean, you want to talk about that for keep, a second because yeah. most of his quartet is not white. Right. I think black. I think maybe Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a mul- yeah. there's two women, and Elaine is a is a black man. Cuthbert no, no, no. Elaine's is, no, no. Elaine. Cuthbert Elaine is Frankie Fox's white, and, it, oh, and it's, yeah. Really? yeah, Cuthbert's black. Yeah, because oh. Elaine because Elaine even has that. They even they mention the fact that he kind of has like a se- like a, a seventh sense, which is obviously it's the shine. You know, it's like right. The book. Yeah, that's um, interesting. So I, that was kind of cool. Since they don't name him, I guess I just assumed the uh, yeah. I, I and then you know what I should have known because he uses the slingshot later. Anyways, yeah. yeah. Um. Anyways, we get introduced to them, which is pretty cool. They find Brown's place and um Elaine basically yeah because you guys mentioned the seventh sense. He senses the dark presence and like we mentioned before with seeing the silhouette of the man in black, we get another sensation of that really cool patient eerie scene 
here mm-hmm. where they know something's wrong. There's flies buzzing around and they find Brown's body and essentially say, uh, Roland wouldn't, couldn't have done this. He wouldn't spill blood needlessly. Uh, and then one of, I believe it's Jamie says he, sp- or maybe it was Jamie's niece says he spilled quartz. Um, and they say he had his reasons he must have, which was interesting to me because isn't like, and you guys might need to correct me here. Uh, Like, I thought his win over court was sort of, you know, the trial that he had to face to become a gunslinger. Right. That's what I thought, yeah. I think in this version, gathering from what Glenn was saying in the interview, I think in this version, he wanted to go after the man in black. And in order to do that, he needed his weapons. But I think court was in the way. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, it's they get into to it book, more though, because even in the book, it's not necessarily his time for the test. But he remember he goes down because he's upset, and so he makes him take do the test. I feel yeah. like that's going to be the same thing here. Although yeah. we'll never know. And maybe the yeah. gunslingers <laughs> just don't realize that that happened. You know, I think so. Yeah. So I imagine the timeline of the events is supposed to be that he wants to be able to go after Martin, and so that he insists upon getting the guns. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know. So. Interesting stuff. Um, we get another one of the gunslingers um, that finds Zoltan and Zoltan is doing the beans beans thing. And then out of nowhere and, and kind of the one uh, jump scare, the actual jump scare that's in the episode that I think is effective because it's yeah. the only real jump scare. Uh, this giant rat creature like jumps up and, and uh, kills the crow, fights with another rat creature for it. And, you know, I felt like that creature was a pretty good representation of what you might find in this world. It felt like yeah. something you might see in the wastelands. It's one um, of the muties. Yeah, yeah, the beauty mice. <laughs> yeah, which I, I thought like was super beauty cool. Mice, so I've got rid. Yeah. So yeah, and it didn't look too CGI, CGI. No. Um, so that was really cool. And yeah, and then um, oh, I noticed too. I didn't catch this. I got caught this in my second watch. The crow actually asks, "Is that you, Martin?" Mm-hmm. Um, which mm-hmm. I, you know, obviously it's repeating things. So I thought that was kind of a neat, uh, a neat moment there. Um, we cut back to Roland, who is still haunted by uh, Martin. He sees his reflection in the water. He's sitting by a road, shaving, and then somebody flies by on kind of a steampunk motorcycle. Um, and we, that's when he sort of realizes, uh, he's close to Hambury and we get sort of this big establishing shot that shows the city from a distance and shows that it is, you know, pretty big city. This is one of my favorite moments of the entire pilot. Um, mm-hmm. where, this is when I really believe that like, okay, Sam strike is rolling. Yeah. Like this, this he's is really, this good. is rolling. And this is something that, you know, we talked about patience earlier. The fact that you're they allow a scene like this in a pilot that has like four or five different threads going on is, is, is un- unbelievable. And it's a hero moment. Like when I see him shaving, like I'm like, you get some sort of, it just, there's a lot of nuance that's on his face. And the minute that he sees the, the motorcycle go by and then you get to see the little King's dominion with the King's road and everything. But King's you kind of, it, yeah. it, it reminds me of something <laughs> that I, I really hammered about a, like when we were doing our stand recaps is that, these quiet moments are so essential for character building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked about that in the stand uh, recaps in relation to like Breaking Bad and how like in Breaking Bad, you get so many moments where it's just like, you know, Jesse smoking a cigarette or Walt just like kind of just being alone in his car and just thinking. And you need those moments. You need to have that personal moment with the character. And I love that they give Roland that moment here because when he holsters his guns and he walks through, I'm like, fucking Christ, I'm finally seeing the, the like, I love Idris Elba as the gunslinger. Don't get me wrong. He's probably my favorite part of that, that entire movie. But like, this is the the first time I really feel like I'm actually seeing like what we're, we actually read in this, in the book, in the source material. Like it, it's just, mm-hmm. I got chills. I got total chills and it's a total hero moment. Put it on a poster to quote an NBA thing, but I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I love it. Justo, what do you got? Well, I think the casting 
is, is great there, not just because of the performance, but because it's hard to really pinpoint how old Roland is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he does have a little bit of a five o'clock shadow, but for me, he looked like he could be anywhere between like 15 and 21. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I agree with I that. It's crucial because you don't want Roland in this to be too young. You don't mm-hmm. to feel like he's a 13 year old annoying whiny <laughs> teen. You know what I mean? He does think there's his whiny moments later on because he is still coming of age. Right. Yeah. But and then to speak about the hero moment, something else we need to talk about is the way that they have the way that they shoot the guns. I'm talking about the way that the camera films the guns. Mm-hmm. The, you you could just tell how important these guns are, yeah. like these sandalwood guns are, and I and I it, it almost looks like the guns are a little bigger than a normal gun would be of that um, caliber. I'm really yeah. bad with guns, yeah, but of no. that supposed size too. I'm not sure if that's the trick of the camera, but you, they almost look like they're just cannons that they're holding. Well, this yeah. is, you know? the, Randall, didn't it seem like the way that they kind of shoot the gun, like when people are having the guns, like it reminded me of like um, the way that they, they show like with Resident Evil 4 when it was like <laughs> over the shoulder. Yeah. And, yeah. It kinda, and that actually changed the way that people actually do third person um, gaming at the time. Yeah. And it, because it lets you feel as if you are that character, but also at the same time you're watching that character. Mm-hmm. So I think that was like an interesting, like when they, when he comes into the bar later on, there's a shot like that. That's very similar. And you really yeah, do get that sort of intimacy shot. of him holding the gun and you feel like you're in that moment and mm-hmm. the direction's really sharp. Hopkins. Yeah. Good job. Justo. So it's just, so right where you stop with the motorcycle when Roland sees that motorcycle driving by, this is pretty much the end of the first half. Mm-hmm. Because we're about to launch into, well, a lot more stuff with the Wizarding Glass section. But can we talk about some criticisms? Yeah, bring it. Yeah. Um, I would say that my big criticism, even honestly, the only criticism I really have is that a lot of the Gilead Gilead stuff feels like minor league Game of Thrones. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Um, I think the way, I'm not sure who plays Gabriel, Mm -hmm. a lot of that dialogue feels a little forced, a little almost soap opery in a way well the dialogue's rough too because yeah, it's, it's rough it, I, even, it feels, even from the great yeah. um you know even steven's dialogue isn't great yeah. but and i think that the story would have been better served if they just either treated those as flashbacks or just part of a bottle episode later on or minor moments in future episodes like i, I i'm not a huge fan of it going back and forth between what's going on back at gilead i'm much more interested in what's going on and Hambry, and much more interesting, what's going on with Roland and his quartet, you know? 100%. Yeah, my biggest, the scenes I like the least were the ones set in Gilead. And um, yeah, and while I think that Jerome Flynn is really good, uh, the actress playing Gabrielle, just, I, I said this Lane to Mike, Cassidy. I believe. Yeah. Uh, Elaine Cassidy. She's, I think she's probably a very good actress. She just doesn't feel right in this world for me. She doesn't feel, like, whereas I felt like Susan, the woman cast as Susan, and even the woman cast as Rhea, I, they felt very much of that world, uh, whereas I struggled with Gabrielle. And, um, and yeah, the dialogue is really clunky because it's kind of in that, I don't know, that affected Old English kind of that mm. they're adopting. And um, whereas the, uh, yeah, there's a lot of exposition. And I think just, um, and and that might be it's the formality of it, perhaps, because they're speaking in, in a more formal way. Whereas when we're in Hambury, I feel like the characters are, you know, are a little more lower class and speak yeah. more like human beings. And uh, so, yeah, Justin. And it is a challenge again because it's a pilot episode, mm-hmm. you know, because how much do you need to explain to people what's going on? I feel like there's always when we hear about this from, from people in the biz, as it were, that there are always like two pilots really, right? There's the pilot mm-hmm. for the entire series. And then the second episode is usually how the series is going to play out. Right. Like the beats of the series and how it's 
scene to scene and story to story. So, you know, I'm not sure yeah. how, how much of Gilly we would have had, honestly, in, in future episodes, but. Yeah, I, think, I mean, yeah. based on what he was saying, I think that those, you know, uh, Gabrielle and Steven were going to play pretty big roles at yeah. least this season because he mentioned that one of the things he wanted to do was develop them beyond the books because we really don't get a sense of either of them in there. If you listen to our interview, he kind of describes Steven as this kind of an asshole in the books, which he is. And uh, Gabrielle, you know, we kind of know her primarily through her relationship with uh, Martin and how that impacts and ripples throughout the rest of the characters. So it's uh, so... There is one scene that we're yet to talk about that I think is a pretty good scene between them. And mm-hmm. I can see sort of the path that he was carving. Uh, but yeah, I, I do agree, though, wholeheartedly that those are the weakest um, moments. I, I, I honestly think it's a lot of the 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 back and forth, you know, and because and I, I think that with Stephen does work for the most part. I mean, even that mm-hmm. the, the earlier scene when he kind of fi- first arrives in his Gilead, I still think that's stronger than the scene that was preceding it. I, I you know, mm. it's that, what was it? That I can't remember. I don't know what his character's name was, but um, she was talking to like one of the hands that, uh, that, Oh, Vinay, know, that I believe. Yeah. And it's just some of the dialogue that like, even on the third watch today, it was just like, that's a little rough. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, and, it, and a lot of it's his delivery too, because I don't know if I actually think when she the way that she handles the dialogue, like the dialect, she does it with a little more finesse. But his is just so stoic that I'm just like, ah, no, and it's the first time we're really hearing it, so it's just very kind of jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the di- the dialect is just. I mean, the the high speak <laughs> in Gilead is. It's tough. I mean, it's tough in the book. You know what I mean? Like I, I, and I think if you're an actor trying to wrap your head around it and you're, and you're not necessarily a dark tower, like dark tower fiend, like we are, I think it could be difficult. I think that as the series went on it, you know, I think there, there would have been a familiarity people kind of, you know, just like the books, you know, as you, as you continue to read that, that dialogue, you're like, oh, you start, you kind of start picking it up, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, how to, how to say things. I think mm-hmm. that Roland and his and, the, and his quartet they pulled off better because they treated it so casual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the people, whereas the, the quote unquote adults back home are really treating this like it's Arthurian legend. Yep. Yeah. The 100%. way that they're delivering their dialogue, and I, that's why I don't think it works as well. It's, it's also like natural, you know? think about the themes that they have to wrestle with. A lot of the stuff that's in Gilead is very um, soap opera. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, whereas not, yeah. a lot of the stuff with that that you get to with the quartet is a little bit more action driven. You know, yeah. Like, uh, you know, I seek justice. Like that's. And then we get yeah, and then we end up at Rhea of the Coos's house, and we're sort of at the very beginning of the flashback in Wizard and Glass. This is where it begins, and this is a a scene we talk a lot about in our interview with Glenn because clearly it was a tough scene. It's a tough scene in the book. Essentially, we have Susan arriving at Rhea's house. She's been sent there to basically have her womanhood checked uh ria will basically write a a kind of quote-unquote doctor's note to confirm that she is still a virgin for uh thorin who is the mayor of hambury he's kind of a scumbag uh we'll talk more about him later um and yeah so we get ria of the kuz's house and i think it's pretty well designed it's long narrow there's various candles lit there's sort of this vintage music playing that's really cool we'll talk more about some of the music choices later which is really fun um then there's a lot of like witchy stuff on the table you know lots of very looks like spices and herbs and shit uh very dimly lit and then there's sort of like these old kind of machines that are kind of littered throughout as well that are non-functioning um Susan arrives and uh, Rhea is a lot less witchy than I'd imagined you know sort of when you read it and I think 
King sort of paints her as a very crone kind of character. And uh, here she's it's played by, a, I believe, a Latin actress. And um, she's got, you know, a lot of hair and she's, you know, plump and uh, very much unlike the kind of withered skeleton I always imagined Rhea to be, which I like because it sort of gives that character room to devolve, which is important, <laughs> I think. here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Justin, what were you going to say? Well, you, you, she looks like just she looks like another villager. And I mean, yeah. in a good way, like she, she looks like she just grew up with everybody else, but turned out she's a witch right yeah it's funny because i always i always picture ria of the coups from the book as the witch from robin hood prince of thieves <laughs> oh wow that. yeah like, yeah 100 like, always saw so obviously this is a 180 i even went higher like with a, <laughs> the burton witch from what is it sleepy hollow with like the fucking <laughs> it's been yeah but years. i mean I, that is what <laughs> i can't remember since i've seen it <laughs> but I, I do think that is what king going for but i also think that that's where uh Mazarov is going eventually yeah. with what he says, and I'll leave that for the interview. Mm. But yeah. I really liked, yeah, I, I thought the this was another moment where, you know, like we were talking about earlier about these these slow moments where you have you have to have quiet moments with the characters, and I could have just seen them just totally cutting out Susan remotely walking to this place and just having her enter, and we start the dialogue and stuff. But you need those moments, and I I, I just. Cause you know, it's like our introduction to Susan, you know, and she's singing mm. and you get the, you know, you can tell she's wearing her dad's shirt, you know, like, I mean, it, the, the, the attention to detail is there. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I was really, I really was like super on board. Even, I mean, even in, in the, uh, in Ray's little hut, uh, they panned to the table and that two headed snakes there. And I, I yep. jumped up. I was like, Ermat, <laughs> I was like so excited. Cause I was just like, just weird things that they could have just left out, you know, that maybe didn't have a place, but there was like, no, there's there, the attention to detail really won me over there. So mm-hmm. if there were chances they were taking with maybe the look of a character or this or that, I was, I was really starting to become very forgiving because I was like, I think this is in good hands. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I'll, I mean, I say this in the interview, but this is a scene that when it was going down, I mean, I, I turned to Sammy who had just finished reading the book and I said, if they're doing this scene, I mean, fucking all bets are off with what they're going to do in this series. I mean, they, go, they, they don't Christ shy away. Sake. They do not shy away. Yeah. Yeah. I will say in the book, it's, it's more explicit that Rhea, uh, sort of, uh, because basically when she's checking her, um, to see if she's still, you know, quote unquote pure, uh, she basically assaults her and, yeah. um, and because she, the what's implied in the book is that she gets really horny for the grapefruit. The grapefruit is sort of this magical object that we won't get too deep into. And if there's one thing I think might be confusing um, to first time viewers who haven't read the book, this is one scene where I think it might be a little confusing because there are so many different elements. Like, who is this woman? Uh, why is she checking this girl like this? Because that's not like, you know, obviously a common practice. It's described in the dialogue, but it is weird. And then also we've got this glowing pink purple light that um, unnerves Susan, but also excites uh, Rhea. And that's a lot of different elements that are very otherworldly. I think the scene is really great. Um, that's just the one scene I think if you have not read the book, it might be a little bit overwhelming. But um, but yeah, <laughs> if you've the, read the book, it's still pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Pretty, and I'll uh, say that I'll say that the the assault aspect of it to me is less um, explicit than it is in the book. But Susan is clearly uncomfortable and uh, and basically says like what her reaction maybe it is to the basically fingers that are prodding her but it's when she sees the grapefruit glow that she kind of 
snaps and says like what witchery is this and then Rhea mm-hmm. hates being called a witch even though she is one and uh, they argue over that but I do think the casting is really great with Rhea because there is something really creepy and unsavory about her in the dialogue but also in the performance where uh, yeah she like I like how you framed it Justin and that she doesn't look all that different from the rest of the the villagers that we meet but there is something you can tell deeply deranged about her and um and uh, Rhea hugs her and it's very you know again unnerving after what she's been through and says lie with no other man and and then after Susan leaves we get this really creepy still shot that was probably the creepiest moment for me of Rhea or Rhea just standing in front of the purple glow um Mm -hmm. with her hands in the air and it's just a still shot and it just kind of sits for about three or four seconds and that to me was uh very effective um yeah that's that Stephen Hopkins magic we've been talking about (laughs) (laughs) you see it in blown away um, <laughs> Love blown away. Um, I always confused it with Arlington Road. Uh, mm-hmm. So sequel. Mark Romanek, I believe, didn't he do that? Or Mark Pellegrino? No, Mark Romanek. No, Mark Pellegrino is the devil in, um, in Supernatural. Oh, well, speaking uh. of the devil, <laughs> <laughs> all the Supernatural guy who plays God was also in the Stephen King's Golden Years, King's Dominion. Yeah. Uh, so mm. cut to Gilead. Uh, and it's interesting you mentioned the framing of the guns, the idea that these guns are larger um, and sort of more imposing than regular guns, because it's in this scene in Gilead where we get to see this sort of elaborate mechanized box that holds, it looks like, the sort of um, ceremonial weapons. Um, Gabrielle opens it and pulls out some of the uh, guns for herself because she is still determined to go find Roland herself. And then this is the scene where I thought we actually got some nice acting because, uh, you know, Steven essentially blames her. He says, you've done enough. And Gabrielle says, you blame me for this. And he won't let her leave. And he's clearly spurned. And they mention Martin and they mention, they sort of hint towards the idea that something happened between Gabrielle and Martin. And uh, basically he says, you and Martin, was it love that brought him to our bed? And, um, and then he says he sort of I think Stephen comforts himself by saying it was sorcery and sorcery alone. Mm-hmm. She says, I do not love him, but that doesn't mean that she didn't uh-huh. want to bone him. So yeah, I actually think right. that there's some nice emotional uh, ambiguity here. And Glenn talks about that a little bit in our interview as well. Justin, what were you going to say? Well, it's funny because I keep describing these guns as looking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. I keep picture, I keep saying the guns actually look larger than normal looking guns. So all I can think of are people at home listening and thinking, is it like. And Roger Rabbit when they've got no. those giant guns. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. They just look bullets. a little. Please, the dimensions are a little bigger than your normal um, yeah. gun. That's all I'm saying. Well, they also your have Bob Hoskins uh, with the guns too. Um, we appreciate yeah. the old CGI Bob Hoskins showing. Yeah, up. that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he plays. So, he plays uh, Thorn. <laughs> Thorn. Thorn. I wish. Um. So yeah. So basically, it seems to me that. Uh, he kind of locks her in and he won't let her leave. Um, and which again, not moving the action forward that much, but it does, uh, you know, speak to, I think the character dynamic and the, and it speaks to what it is that Roland is in pursuit of Martin for that. There was some sort of, um, you know, relationship that he resents cut to, uh, well, the there's also, cute. I will oh, say there's ahead. one little thing with, uh, yeah. with, with the, with showing her being locked in there. It subtly sets up a nice uh, little twist or scare later mm. on in the the final minutes. 
that, mm, that, yeah, that of something sure. that happens where you can go, oh, wait, and then, okay, we'll talk yeah, about that in a second. Yeah, good point. But, yeah, we'll, yeah. Get, we'll talk about that soon. Um, cool. Cut to meet cute. Susan and Roland meet on the road. Um, he basically asks after an inn. She's going to the Feast of the Kissing Moon in a very pretty dress. Um, and then um, I actually have some questions for the the tower heads in here. Um she they they see the beam up up above them and susan remarks that she's never seen this before uh i guess i was under the impression that the beams kind of you know did those when did those manifest do you got can you guys answer that um they don't so i I don't believe that i don't believe that they really see them in in the books i feel like it's more of like a like an instinct kind of yeah i think that something that i think that maybe we're going for in this is that like things are things are breaking down so much so now that it's like now you can actually see the beam Mm -hmm. because things are wrong something's not right Mm -hmm. so there's like things presenting themselves uh because they're they're kind of you're kind of at the turn of events because i don't really i don't remember them ever really seeing the beam unless it was like a vision or yeah. Do they? I think yeah. it's almost like a constellation situation from what I yeah. can recall. I I've read those mm-hmm. everybody. I've read the books straight through twice. But there has been a number of years and I've probably read a hundred books since then. So you, <laughs> please forgive me. But I want I want to say this about the beam. This doesn't this beam doesn't look like something out of like a deep space nine episode from nineteen ninety five. Like it looks great. Yeah. Like it yeah. looks beautiful. Yeah. Like I, I agree with you that. Gorgeous. Advertising yeah. how they how yeah. they captured it. It's kind of this Almost, it's funny enough. It's kind of got like a, a grapefruitish hue to it. Ironically, yes. uh, yeah. scarily enough, but it's it almost like good. a like a river in the sky, like a winding mm. river. Like it's so mm. cool how the way they do it. It's not what you would think. It's not just like a straight line, which I kind of also like because if things are breaking down, you know. Yeah. I wish uh, they played Billy Joel's "River of Dreams." Well, yeah, because yeah, because I thought I did think it was a strange choice to use uh, Joni Mitchell's river at this meet cute. Yeah. Well, I thought it was I thought it was a really strange choice for them to kind of pivot over to an eight bit version of uh, Springsteen's "The River." Um, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. God, but that you didn't stole happen. my joke, Mike, so I can't use that anymore. <laughs> I will say I love this scene, and yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of uh, really solid meat cutes. And I think this one's really good. It reminds me a lot of like James Cameron's type of meat cutes because you get this kind of warrior type character, you know, with with Roland, but with a strong female also to match him. And mm-hmm. it reminds me of like Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor in Terminator One. Like she's stripping him down a little bit in terms of emotions like this is like the most emotional reactions we get from him until this point and it's totally believable and they say so much with their physical expressions like they're just i don't know i, I just think it's really smart I, I i have to imagine and i wish we would have asked him about this but i have to imagine they probably played up this a lot behind the scenes you know to kind of get mm-hmm. that sort of like implied chem- chemistry that you get here because the minute they get together, I mean, it's dynamite. I want to see these two together. They're they're too hot. It's a yeah. hot couple here. And- <laughs> uh, thank you, Sai. Yeah. Um, Justin. I think it's so hard to take what Stephen King gives us with Roland on the page because, especially in the first Gunslinger, I honestly, all the books, is that Roland is just very stoic mm-hmm. and straight-faced, right? And that's why you kind of, you've got Eddie and Suzanne and Jake to bounce off of him because they're much more... You know, they got much more character to them. I shouldn't say much more character, but they're just much more animate, right? Mm-hmm. They react to things more strong, strongly than Roland does. And so I, I keep forgetting what this actor's name is, but he does do a great job Sam of Strike. keeping... Sam Strike. Great name, by the way. But I hope right? it's his, yeah. Christ, his Christ-given name. Um, <laughs> but 
he does a great job of staying serious but still having some charisma where it would make sense that she would be attracted to him. And I think mm. it's a hard thing to pull off, and he does a really good job in this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he introduces himself as Will Dearborn. He's hiding his real name. Mm. Sparks fly. They walk together to uh, to basically the big festival, and we cut to downtown. It's very lavish. Lots of lots of extras, uh, all dressed up. We got people on stilts. Uh, we got animals. We got all kinds of things. Torchlight. I'm looking, and then uh, he she's basically trying to get to why he's in town. He uh, he won't give her the detail she says my father says never trust a man who has too many secrets it's all very flirty and then uh there's sort of this neat shot where martin sort of enters the uh tunnel that is sort of you know the tunnel of sorts that is leading into downtown and everyone sort of like filters off into the sides and disappears. this is my favorite shot of the entire show yeah it's cool cool. and then he kind of walks by himself through and then when he walks all the way through everyone comes back like nothing changed yeah Um, yeah it's one shot and it it looks so great because they're just absentmindedly all wandering off at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then they're absentmindedly walking right back to where they were and the music keeps playing. It's really chilling. But what, yeah. what's also cool about this entire sequence is the way that Hopkins allows you to kind of really take in this town with them. You know, like you're mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of walking alongside them and it's a wide enough shot where you really get to kind of see all the intricate details of the set. And, you know, Glenn talks about yeah. it in our interview about how really, truly intricate this was. I mean, they built it from the ground up and... I mean, dare I say, I think this is actually more of a complex set than any of the physical sets we saw in like the fucking new Star Wars movies. Like I, there's mm. so much detail to this that mm. it really, he, it's funny because he mentions that it, it uh, Glenn mentions that it, it, it reminded him of like kind of like a downtown Disney thing. And it totally is that it feels like it, there's a lot of depth to it. It feels like there's these are real buildings that are having things happening within them. Like, I don't know. I like yeah. that. There's a lived in feel that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think is really hard to capture 99% of the time, but, and maybe it's because, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it really does. I, I mean, I mean, kudos to the, to the set people <laughs> for this. Cause it, I believed it, you know, I thought I was like, okay, this is Ambry and this is the traveler's rest. And you know, like, yeah. uh, did a good job setting it oh, up. Oh, I had a, I had a question for you, Mac. Um, when they were, because you've, you know, these books better than I do at this point, cause it's been so long since I've read them. When they pan over, when they were show, first showing the beam earlier, they pan over across like Hambry Cemetery. Sammy said that that's an important part of Wizard and Glass, but like, is that foreshadowing like a, a set piece later on? Because it kind of feels they don't linger on it like the fucking blue milk in Rogue One, but like <laughs> you do see it enough in the background. Yeah. You're no, like, right, I wrote this it down. I wrote it down because it did ring a bell, but I, I'm not quite there yet on my reread of Wizard and Glass, and that's a okay. long book I, i'm yeah. trying to remember so i, I can't I, remember if a certain no because a certain character i'm thinking about does not perish there so i don't know specifically i, I can't say either i'm sure our just, listeners are screaming at yeah. right, no, right it's, now it's this <laughs> you idiot oh okay no it, I, I just looked it up it's definitely it's a big part of how roland dis, uh discusses how um he's going to destroy the tankers at the sitco Mm. Oh, that's that's not that oh. okay. I don't feel it's like not that. big a deal, but it's just enough that. of that. It's but like, it's okay, cool this little, is a cool little. You know, we're in Hambry now, and a lot of well, people have that died makes here. sense though, because <laughs> in the pilot, uh, Susan does say to him, "Hey, if you ever want to meet up with your friends to discuss how to destroy John Parsons' <laughs> army, you should go to the cemetery. <laughs> Nobody ever meets there." Oh, that was the one thing I wanted to ask Glenn in our interview was, "Are you going to keep the part where they talk for 15, 20 pages about counting horses?" <laughs> oh, you know what? Listen, uh, hold on a second. That is an ode. To Larry McMurtry, and I actually love that attention to detail 
I, I'm a big fan of that part of the book. Oh man, I mean, nah, it goes I, on a little, too, on a little too long, King. Of talking about horses and how we're going to get them together and how we're going to blow things up. I, I love it. I love these these old Western passages. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, like I'm all I'm about it, but like once you get it, like three pages later, they're like, "But there were 20 horses at this place so over here." But then did they notice there were 30 over here? And I'm like. We well, got it. <laughs> like, listen. I well, you got to see all those you. pretty horses. Mac, before you reach your own clearing at the end of the path, you should check out Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall and Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Good God. All right. Robert We're Duvall the... of Gone in 60 Seconds fame? Oh, what, 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 you break it, you buy it. Um, <laughs> something very... I also want to say, we, 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 I don't think we can uh, explain just how big the scope of this thing is. Like the big town party, it doesn't look like one of those town parties you see in a in a cheapy movie where it's like, oh look, it's a high school dance and there's thirty mm-hmm. people here. Yeah. There's like hundreds of people. At this yeah, time. it's crazy. It, it, you know what it felt like, Justin? You know? It was like some of the the sequence, some of like the Bond sequences when there's like street party, mm-hmm. like Little yeah. Die and stuff like that. Like, yeah. you feel you feel like you feel like they are just stumbling into this thing and that's really happening. And mm-hmm. they just kind yeah. of be like, okay, well, Mac- we've got a camera. we got to get through this crowd. <laughs> you know? well, Mac, that's why the uh, the pilot ends with uh, Roland getting on a train and it pans out and, and Baron Samedi's at the oh. end. Yeah, <laughs> <turns the screen. laughs> the Baron's alive. He's still alive. Ah, uh, the quest uh, of the Dark pretty, Tower begins. <laughs> three Bond heads out there. What's next? Baron Samedi fled across the desert and the man yeah. and the ghost slinger followed. So we cut to basically uh, Susan and Roland depart and he goes into the hotel bar where he meets Coral, the bartender, and basically is trying to bribe her for information about the man in black. But, you know, true to um, what I believe Brown said, they are not very friendly to gunslingers here. So she takes his money, but doesn't really give him any information. Love it. Um, Cut back to let me see here. We'll hold everything. Are we going to talk about some of the songs? Oh, oh yeah. okay. Well, okay. Yeah. Here, it's the part. I can't there's this one the part song yet. that I know later. Okay. That I could not specific. find these songs. Okay. No, the second one I know. The first yeah. one that's playing in the bar with Coral. I I was trying to like listen to the lyrics and Google it, but I couldn't figure it out. Did you guys know? Same, Randall. I couldn't. Uh, okay. Keep keep vamping, everybody, because I'm I've got the lyrics here. I thought maybe somebody had it already. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna yeah, Google yeah. this. So keep vamping. Okay. Keep vamping. okay. Well, 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 while you do that, I was gonna say, uh, I I love like strong women and that bit that bit <laughs> with you, coral Mac. the bit with coral though i loved i was just like ah oh, man I, I i guess you know sometimes you just think that when when they're gonna when people adapt things that you know there's really rich characters in these stories and I'm, it was just really fun to see all of the characters show up you know what i mean it's not like they were mm-hmm. like well we're just gonna pick and choose and it was like no no it was like coral shimi like mm-hmm. everybody's there. Maybe they may not say their name outright, but they're there. And, and I, I, I like that. Justin. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. Okay. Well, it's, it, it's a little right. bit like the ending. Of, I know you're talking about Mac, but that's a good feeling. It's like the, you know, you know, back in 98, summer 98, when I was, you know, it's getting to the end, you know, you got, you got, uh, you got Riggs going to the hospital and you're like, <laughs> is, is, is this going to be the end of the, the, the dynamic duo that we know Riggs and Murtaugh? And all of a sudden, you know, fucking, Joe Pesci shows up, the chief shows up, and we realize that like all our favorite our favorite characters that we love and adore so much are all here in this hospital, because at the end of the day they're family. You know, it's. I'll just just say that, like much like you know, obviously one of the most I think iconic things that people reference when they talk about the first Gunslinger is the idea that Hey Jude exists in Mm -hmm. Midworld. It you know the Beatles might not, but that song does in whatever sense. And so playing true to that. 
Um, there are sort of folky, I don't know, saloony type covers yeah. of, I think, some modern songs. I, I cannot find the first song. I know. Yeah. It's, 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 I thought it was Ugh. a Nirvana song lyrics. for a second. Nothing's popping up. Yeah, it sounds like that was the thing, say... Justin, I agree, that it sounded familiar. I was like, mm-hmm. I should know this song. The, I but thought I it was honestly a, a, like a Bleach era Nirvana song. And then I, because yeah. the melody sounds like it. It's like, See, y'all have that on me because I, I didn't recognize any of the music so I'm interested well I do know the second song yeah, yeah I know the second song, song. we'll get to great. it uh, I but, cannot believe you don't know the second song Mac um, but, but Randall but, no, that, that, that's, an, that's a good point to, just, to point out because it really is the first time you really kind of get that sort of wait a second this is definitely a fucking mm-hmm. strange world and when you're reading the books because yeah. like, why is Hey Jude playing but, and I feel bad because it's like I feel like Westworld kind of stole that yeah you know? I was just about to say like for you Westworld heads out there that was that was done really well on that show, but that's am I a Westworld head if I just keep watching because I'm too deep in at this point, even though I hate it. Yeah, did you so watch season three? Officially a Westworld. Yeah, I watched head. it all, man. God, I watched the first season and I keep I went waiting back to the great for it to get better. That's enough. But I, I, I think <laughs> that they, I, can't, I can't tell you the third song either. Well. Can't tell you the third song it, either. They did it well, but I this is definitely from from the Dark Tower, the, the bleeding of the music into this into this world or whatever, and just happens to be a Western. Well, you know what's depressing. Is what? that hey, hey Jude is in the is in the Gunslinger, and that book came out when eighty eighty one I think or something like mm-hmm. that, which is only I think thirteen years after Hey Jude. That felt like an eternity. <laughs> I know. So you want to see what the second the, song is? That means the second song that we're going to point out soon is older than Hey Jude was. Yeah, by almost when thirty King wrote years. It. Wow. Thirty years ago. Crazy. So uh, cut back to the town square. There's dancing and uh, tomfoolery and uh, some Mumford and Sons ass band is playing. Uh, (laughs) I will say that took me out a little bit. If one thing did was that the band like was so fucking hipster, like 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 more like seven or eight years ago, hipster, you know, Uh, but it was it was like take place in the in the the past of Midwest. That's true. I, so, I I thought that, like, at least blends. the songs were full, you know, like they felt yeah. real. They felt they felt lively. I, like it didn't pull me out as like they well, just it just felt song. very modern yeah. in ways that be- belied I don't know betrayed the world a little bit. I still liked it. It's not a big well, deal. In your but. interview, they were going to use the house band from from Dustal Dawn. So yeah, they were with <laughs> the human bodies. The Robert don't Rodriguez make any sense. Um, So they should have got there, ZZ Top. Uh, we meet Cordelia, Susan's uh, aunt, who is very religious, very intense, and very unpleasant. Uh, she takes her to Thorin, and uh, basically Susan is going to be Thorin's mistress, and then Thorin will take care of the family. Um, and Thorin here is portrayed, I, I wrote down Ron Jeremy, but fancy. So, <laughs> uh, which I think Ivan works. K. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He was good. He's good look for yeah. it. But uh, yeah, kind of a big beefy boy um, in fancy clothes. <clears throat> Not the kind of guy that you would necessarily want to, um, you know, have to be the mistress of. Uh, and his wife is in a wheelchair who she plays a role as well in the uh, in the book as, as mm-hmm. well. So we get a glimpse of her, not not a ton, but she's clearly knows who Susan is and what Susan is going to be for him and is not pleased by it. So but he's very creepy with her and very much just like, ah, my dear um, and gives her that. And she gives her him the note. You said that, right? Yep. The note. Uh, yeah. Honest, Rhea's note honest. that says honest and Oof. exactly how it is in the book. So, yeah, uh, come back to. <laughs> cut, yeah, cut back to the bar Great and name, here's though. where we hear the second song which Can is I sing it yeah you do it yeah <laughs> mac you tell me if you recognize it. i'm gonna try to do my best I'm imitation you, i'm of the gonna singer. tell you i tried really hard during right. it and i know what it is but i just i, I was not, i was out on it 
Just sing the and chorus. And to the flood again. <laughs> Same old trip it was back then. So I made a big mistake. <laughs> Try to see it once my way. Hey, Justin, are you listening to the single soundtrack? <laughs> if I could, would you? you. Would by Alice in Chains. Great song. Yeah. I was out Great on Alice in Chains it was before my time, my friend. Oh wow! Before your time, get out of here. I was a huge, yeah. I was a huge chain head and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. loved Wood. And this is a great use of it. I actually really like the cover of it. So yeah. that was actually really kind of fun. And I had a moment of of recognition that was very fun. Well, so, it would just passed his anniversary of his death. Yeah, yeah. no joke. Daily. R.I.P. So this is where we actually meet Shimi. Uh, Shimi is actually played by an actor with a disability, and um, which uh, Glenn talks about in our interview. And uh, he is being bullied by Reynolds, who is one of the big coffin hunters, Clay Reynolds, and uh, basically tries to get Shimi to lick his boots. I don't remember if this scene is in the book. Mac, you, you... So yeah, so he, here's the thing. In the book, this whole thing kind of happens, and it's, it's uh, Cuthbert. No, it's Elaine and Reynolds. Okay. And then it's uh, Cuthbert steps in and then the other coffin hunter steps in yeah. and then Jonas shows up and then Roland comes in and is like, okay. got the upper hand on them. And then, and it's yeah. cool how it's done in the book. I wasn't thrilled about the change here because they kind of make it Roland's thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I get, I was just surprised we were already like, uh, like 200 something pages into <laughs> in one episode. Yeah. Yeah, but which is wild. I think there is a lot, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can uh, flesh out. But I, I did like the way the sequence rolled out with the Katat showing up. I thought that was cool. And I love the Yeah, Kurt so bit. we basically, um, Roland steps in. He doesn't like bullies. And he shoots uh, the gun out of the hand of Reynolds and also another guy who was kind of, you know, coming in from the wings. And that's when the fellow gunslingers show up. Uh, Cuthbert uh, fires his slingshot and he sort of shoots what looks like a 10 sided die or something like that, mm-hmm. which is kind of a neat die. moment. Yeah, and uh, and basically they arrive to help and they get away without any consequence, which ends up becoming a, a plot point later. Well, she so, noted um, that uh, Sheeny's played by Daniel Laurie and uh, that Clay Reynolds is played by The Weeknd. Um, <laughs> he does look. He does look like the weekend. Oh, that was also something I was gonna say. I didn't. I didn't love Reynolds because I felt like they were kind of. They kind of cast like a, like a Tybalt kind of like a John Leguizamo from you know, like a Romeo and Juliet, you know, loose cannon. Where I feel like the Coffin Hunters are. They're bad dudes. They're they're not like losers. Mm, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, they are losers, but they are a threat. They make you know Reynolds I mean? look like kind of a loser. They, yeah, they yeah. kind of make him a loser. Well, right? I think yeah. that those guys before Roland shows up, who was from the you know like the line of Eld is a big bad boy himself. I feel like they kind of had their run of the town. Mm. So yeah, I feel like but they I, were I, kings of their own domain. But I feel like even in the book, they think that they're hot shit until Roland's buddies show up. Well, and yeah, because a bunch of morons. They're failed gunslingers, so it's yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, I guess they just kind of make him more. He just seems like a party boy. <laughs> well, there's also well, a great line in that scene, though. He just, he just, he just performed at the Super Bowl. Oh, you know, yeah, do be, you want to give it, Justin? Yeah, the because great, he's, the great they introduce line? the role and they say, hey, this is um, what, Reynolds. He's a, a coffin hunter. And then Roland steps up and goes, well, if it's a coffin, you, if it's, if it's a coffin you hunt, I'll be happy to help. Yeah. Great, yeah. great line. Very, great very line. Clint Eastwood. Great very line. Eastwood. Yeah. And I, I really dug that, yeah. So like if you're in the to, bar and you oh. hear him say that, like you're like, I want to fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, this bar, if you're picturing in your head, it's not like a, your typical saloon bar from a Western where there's like a bar, there's like a bar stand 
couple seats up there, a couple tables. This is like a giant, looks like it's something out of Vegas or something like that. Yeah. It's a big yeah. bar. Very Ooh, ornate. Cool. Yeah. But still like kind of crowded and um, mm-hmm. unsavory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so Listen, I, I, I'd feel uncomfortable there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would too. So we cut to Roland reuniting with his uh, with his buddies. And I love this because we actually do get to see them as friends, mm-hmm. which is cool. Like they're not just he's not just like, hey, thanks for saving my ass. It's kind of like, hey, it's great to see you, which is I don't know. It's cool because it shows his age, but it also humanizes him. And uh, yeah, Justo. Something else I love about we kind of tackled this earlier is and it's very natural. Mm-hmm. They don't really say each other's names at all, right? Because whenever we see each other in groups, whenever we can, in the last year, I've never got like, Randall. How are you? <laughs> Hello, Justin. Mike. Good to see you. It's just <laughs> you just kind of go into the conversation. I think that's really natural. Really good. Yeah, I Mike always. Waiting. Mike I, demands I, handshakes. Well, I speak. I say your name and I say your social security and. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I was sitting there like ready to take. You know, you know, we take notes on all these things, and I was like. Will they say one of their names, please? Like, I, I, I knew some of them, obviously, from the book. Solely stuff, but I was notes. like, I was really interested. And I was like, okay, who are these other two mystery gunslingers? Well, we'll find out episode that- two. Yeah. Yeah, you'll <laughs> yeah, find out. Yeah. So, um, and we kind of learn a little bit more. We get some more context about why he's there. Roland says he can't leave because they want him to come back. Uh, and he says he can't leave until he finds Martin. Um, they, you know, but then they, he essentially says, you know, well, then I'll do it by myself. And they say, we can't do that because we are quartet, one for many. Very awkward line of dialogue that they do their best with. And then, uh, but, you know, setting forth that idea that your burden is also our burden. Uh, and, you know, Roland mentioned specifically that Martin hurt his mother and he needs to restore or uh, restore honor to the house of Eld. So for him, it's not just about getting revenge on, you know, Martin for what he did to his mother, but it's also about uh, the idea that he feels like his lineage and and um, kind of the gunslingers in general have been, you know, shamed and humiliated by Martin. And he wants to set that straight. He gets so, a good hero line, which is like, the, yeah. I don't see vengeance. I see justice. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. I like that. It, was, it had a nice little edge to it. Yeah, so yeah it's cool. RoboCop over here. Yeah, right. RoboCop. Would be cool if RoboCop was in this world. <laughs> with, a, with a cowboy hat? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. If they, if, if P, if they brought Peter Weller, Peter Weller in to play Andy down the line. Maybe it could have been the Kala because they couldn't get the rights to like yeah. Dr. Doom. You just do like a bunch of RoboCops played by multiple Peter no, Wellers. Like, he just goes, you say true. I say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, da, da, da. There's, then there's kind of a really cool dance sequence here. Like, clearly, this is where you can really see all the money that went into this. Um, they dance around the charu tree, uh, which is made of this kind of l- large figure made of stalks and corn. Uh, very large, very imposing. Everybody's dancing around it while uh, the be- the Mumford and Sons band is playing, I believe, a song that's in the book, right? It uh, is. It's yeah. in it is, the book. Uh, I will moon. say it actually reminded me of um, Latter Day. Arcade Fire with kind of like oh. the basic um, chariot tree, chariot tree. I will not for you and me. I will, I, tree. I, I will not allow you to sully Arcade Fire's name, Justin. With that, they start playing no, some no, no, no. some reflector. The, the last hits. couple, al- yeah, hits as it were. The last couple albums, it's kind of like that basic like. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B, C, you know? (laughs) So Susan is dancing. Susan is dancing with Ron Jeremy and then uh, grabs Roland because she's, you know, creeped out. And it's kind of funny, like Roland, basically they're, they're doing, they're holding hands, they're ring around the rosy kind of thing. And, uh, and Roland basically comes between her and Thorin. So he's holding Thorin's hand. hand And there's just kind of a funny, a funny moment where like they clearly neither of them want to be touching each other. And, 
uh, and then Thorin kind of is kind of, you know, once the circle breaks, uh, he goes off on his own and she runs off with Roland and he is not too pleased about that. Yeah. He looks like such a loser. What a cuck. So he um, totally cuck. for episode eight. I, mean, <laughs> I will say that, that, that what I love about this whole sequence is that the folksiness seems really earned because it's it feels old school, like um kind of like an old Washington Irving tale. But then also it has that sort of futuristic quality too, where, you know, it is feels modern. It reminded me a lot of, I don't know if anyone here has ever watched this, but I was obsessed with it last fall. It was Over the Garden Wall, um, hmm, which had no. Elijah Wood in it. And, uh, yeah, it did have that, like the Halloween festival app. Yeah, like there's yeah. the Hard Times of the Husk and Bee. That's the the episode that, it's one of my favorite episodes. It's actually a an homage to Wicker Man and uh, Dead and Buried. Um, but uh, the, the, the wait, wait, is, is a very Wicker Man. I, I I'm pretty sure it has to be. They like, said it's in, Gary. They say we wanted to pay homage to Gary Sherman's dead and buried. I don't know, but it, it feels so indebted to it that like this based on where it goes and everything. I don't know, but I it love. It ends with Jack Albertson as the villain. So I'm willing that into existence. It is inspired by Dead and Buried. It has to be. Go Wikipedia no. source number yeah, five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I don't know. I, I thought like for a scene that could have been really cringy, especially that yeah. song. They earned it, it for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, that song's an earworm, works. by the way. It is. Yeah. An earworm. I've been singing it to like Shiloh all the time. It's just, he's just like, hey man, there's good? a reason Mumford and Sons sold a eight gazillion records, and he's married to Carrie Mulligan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Not problematic at all either, but you know. Uh, so I know we'll avoid that. Some uh, of their guitars of are not, awesome. Speaking of not problematic is uh, the man Michael Rooker himself. Yes. We finally get him. We cut back to the bar. Perfect casting. Oh, we talked to um, Glenn Mazzara about about this a bit, and uh, yeah, Michael Rooker is Jonas. Is I remember when that news was announced. I think we all really geeked out about it because it's mm-hmm. just the most perfect casting so uh jonas is uh, basically the head of the coffin hunters and is none too pleased that uh roland humiliated his boys and he assumes that they killed him and asks you know where would you do with the bodies and when they say that you know roland got away he's very upset but the really cool thing about this scene is that martin is here and mm-hmm. he sort of occupies this uh i believe the word mike used was ethereal and that kind of works here as well where he's sort of hunched over at the bar and it appears that he's the only one uh, that Jonas is speaking to, or he's basically speaking to Jonas and saying, you know, this guy humiliated your man and everything, but it doesn't appear that anyone else sees Martin, only uh, Jonas. And it seems like Martin sort of has this hold on his mind and is feeding him rage and basically manipulating him to, uh, you know, go after Roland and kill him. And, um, and yeah, Rooker's great. He's just, he's, you know, he's got a kind of a silly, the silly hat of that all the, all the coffin hunters sort of have. Uh, and then, you know, they remind me of like Deadwood characters, like the, yes. you know, the guys who wear like the top hats and everything, but their suits are all smudged with mud. Like it's, uh, it's like that kind of lower, lower class kind of character who still dresses fancy, but clearly hasn't washed his clothes in a while. And he's got kind of a scraggly beard and, uh, and yeah, and then this is where we, the first time we really get to see Martin, um, what's his name? Jasper Pakonen? Uh, Pakonen, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, this is the first time we really get to see him um, as Martin, and he is uh, excellent. And one of the things that really struck me was when I was, we were talking to Glenn, he mentions that, you know, what they he liked about uh, Jasper was that this was a guy who, you know, his face was sort of, to this thing, not forgettable, but like, it's hard to describe to another person. I remember during mm. the interview, I was like, I don't know, like, I remember him really vividly, but I remembered him as being bald. And yeah. in this scene, he's not bald. He has hair. And I, I was just like, oh, shit. Like, I totally misremembered him, which is kind of the whole point of what uh, Glenn was saying, which is he that looks like a Nazi. A- 
Yeah, well, yeah, yeah he looks like he he what? has a very sort of unnerving look. Like it's the kind of like a mad scientist in some like it's world oily War hair. II, yeah, like like genre scene or genre. He reminded movie. Uh, me of uh, the villain in uh, Frighteners. Uh, what's his yes. name? Mm-hmm. Reanimator. Jeffrey yes. Combs. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but like you were saying, Randall, um, uh, like Glenn was saying that they're they, that was the whole idea of the character and that they were gonna. Um, anytime they shot him, like he was maybe maybe his suit was a was a, a almost dark red that was black and then the next scene was a dark blue that was black that mm. you just couldn't ever really get couldn't put your finger on it and and that's perfect you know, that's you just, what yeah, i wanted to say is that even his dialect is off because yes. sometimes he says yeah. he's got an irish lint to it and then just sounds like straight american or straight american right. english and even with like he does this sort of not really kind of break the fourth wall but he's really looking elsewhere too. Like yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's so fucking effective. But he, I love it. he said that he came, he came like that, that, that dialect thing with his voice changing constantly like that, that he just brought that to it. Oh, he mentioned that. And that he was like, he was like, cool. when you have someone like that, you just let them run with it. His choices are also deliberate that you know that it's not like a mistake. And right, um, right. like it's a very Jared Leto showing up and saying, "Look how fucking weird I am." <laughs> Look at this dildo I got, everyone. No, um. but it's a very confident performance, and I, I love what you said, Mike, about the idea that he is breaking the fourth wall a little bit because, yeah, he isn't looking at Jonas. He's like, he's sort of. There's this almost like spectral presence, like he's almost like hovering, like he's almost mist that is uh, clouding around this man. And uh, and we see a little bit of that in a, like later in a scene we're about to discuss as well. But it's it's a really effective scene and one where we don't we get a handle of the characters like enigmatic nature and mystery without, you know, uh, the character needing to announce himself in any kind of way. Well, you so. get the idea Something? that like okay. he's oh, sorry, you get the idea that he's kind of like this sleek agent of chaos. You know, mm, like even yeah. especially when he, when he leaves the bar and he stares at Shimi and yeah. it's like he understands what's going to happen. And there's like a knowing look to him. That's and, the but, question I have. You know, that's Does what he, it is, right? Like, is that an allusion to him knowing that Shimi is going to be like a, a big integral to future yeah. Dark Tower books? I'll put it that way. I yeah, perhaps. I like that idea or just that. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I right. I, I think that like either way, it, either cool way, stuff it's like that that they're dropping and not explaining, and I that's what I like about this. You know, there's a lot of things that they're and that's what Glenn was saying. He was like, there was a lot of layers to it. It was one of the shows that you have to watch multiple times, and I think we uh, some of us have seen the episodes multiple times, and we're still asking these questions. That's what's good, you know. But yeah. something I need to point out: what I loved yeah. about Rook, Rooker's entrance, where we can't just we follow him into the bar. If you know this from the bartender, he takes the the shot glass from her with two hands. <laughs> yeah, which is such a weird choice. And then he takes a shot and then kisses her. But I thought that was such a weird choice on the second watch, where he just instead of just reaching forward and taking a shot like a badass, he he reaches forward with two hands to, to take it with both hands. How many and takes that shot? He so did weird. That. Probably one, right? Probably one. He's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. Some more great stuff about. Uh, Rucker in our interview, which you can listen to over at patreon.com slash the Barons. <laughs> so um, let, we're hitting the end game here. So we cut back to the party. Uh, Roland and Susan are dancing and it's really sweet. Like they're, ha- they're I genuinely believe they're having fun, <laughs> which is really <laughs> yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I fully buy the connection there, which is great. Uh, the coffin hunters, like we kind of get all the characters merging now in this sort of downtown square. The coffin hunters are looking for Roland and the gunslingers like Roland's friends are all there. And what kind of triggers sort of the ending sequence is Roland sees Martin across the way and 
chases him. And then it sort of leads to this relatively abstract sequence in mm. this series of kind of like underground, not underground, but like above ground tunnels that are sort of there. And um, all these like, like various stone pillars and there's like uh, smoke and burning trash cans. And it's, it's uh, everything is sort of draped in fog. And there's this huge kind of, uh, they scan back and they show the whole city. And it's almost as if the whole city has fallen under this fog and uh, it becomes very or, dreamlike. Or, or, or mist. Or mist, yeah. <laughs> what if the mist monster? Yeah, <laughs> oh God. Like that's the twist uh, at the end. It must of the be episode. that uh, that mist from that Arrowhead project uh, outside <laughs> like, Hambury. Yeah, when uh, Roland's telling the, the story at the campfire, is like, hey, remember that yeah. thing we dealt with at the wastelands? <laughs> So, um, so basically the gunslingers are squaring off against the coffin hunters and they're all shooting at each other. And, uh, but really we're following Roland Mm -hmm. as he's walking through this smoky space and being haunted by Martin and a really cool effect happens that where Martin sort of, you know, is kind of hovering around him and coming in and out of the shadows and his face begins not to blur, but to sort of split almost like, and Mm. it reminded me because it was almost, it, it felt like a very, like very Picasso right like his uh his features started becoming very blocky and and things like that and it reminded me a lot of the uh illustrations in wizard and glass uh mm. which are very abstracted and and like sort of um what's what i'm looking for i don't know like um glassy and stuff yeah, like that that's it's the uh dave dave mckeon illustrations and he's, yeah. he's awesome he does a lot of uh work with you know gaiman and mm-hmm. yeah totally i didn't even think about that randall but i that I absolutely yeah that was what i was i was thinking when i saw sort of these this the way his body was abstracting which was really effective because we start to hear more um you know of these ominous voices that are in roland's head and it kind of builds and climaxes to this bit where martin is walking directly towards roland and roland is just unloading his gun at him and he's shooting and then uh then uh, martin transforms into gabrielle and she's been shot multiple times and she falls on Roland and he is freaking out because he thinks he just killed his mom. And, and you know, there is this moment where it does tease you that it yeah. could be real because Gabrielle spent the whole episode saying she's going, she's going to find Roland. Yeah, and uh, but then, effective. yeah, but then when she hits the ground, we see that it's actually Reynolds. So, um, hey, they actually killed Reynolds, which he actually doesn't die in Wizard and Glass. Spoiler alert. But um, but yeah, uh, so. And then Martin basically it ends with him and Roland's ear, and he says, "You will kill everything and every everyone you love." And yeah. that, uh, and and Roland basically, you know, uh, falls into sort of existential despair in this moment. And then that's the end of the episode, and that's the end of the <laughs> Dark, Tower. Dark Tower, <laughs> which just is unbelievable. Sucks, <laughs> I mean, we liked it. <laughs> that sequence alone, it, it reminded me so much of like the 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 chaos, uh, the in, in Ghost Protocol with like you mm. know the the dust wind and everything, and it has a lot of Roger Deakins lighting in there. It's just so disorienting and so mesmerizing that I just don't understand how anyone, whether it was someone at Amazon or the test, you know, people that re- watched it, they didn't watch that and say, I want more. Like, how do you not want more after watching that? Sequence? I will it's say just- this about Amazon. I mean, I think that sometimes when it comes to riskier projects, they, they don't, like the reason they picked up the expanse is because it's it's popular now after it had been established established. but like if you like again i i'd say like the patriot if you watch that show by the end you're like man 
I can't believe they're not going to continue this. Why? And you can, but you can tell because it's just, it's weird. And it does, and it's, and it's, I don't know where its audience is at, but it's like, I just think that they did, even though, you know, the people behind the show had like seasons mapped out, all Mm -hmm. of the first season written. I mean, all this stuff that they were, that they were saying, I, I just was, I, I, I don't know. It is bewildering that they, they didn't take the chance, but I think unfortunately, I mean, it's just weird because I think if they had called it something else, if they had just called it the gunslinger and di- tried to distance itself from the dark tower, because it, mm. because if they were worried that people were going to associate with the movie, um, because it's such a different take, I think it would have, it would have maybe been more palatable, but uh. Yeah, it's just tough because I think that it's the timing in a way, too, because the reason the show, you know, became became in development was because it was going to be associated with the movie. So since that had already yeah. happened and then they decided to say, OK, it's not going to be part of the movie, uh, but the timing is still it's so close together, you know, and then you've also just got, you know, I think after Game of Thrones, especially, you know, in the months, um, you know, leading up to the final season everybody wanted their new game of thrones and i think for amazon it was like well let's try let's scoop up and try to do like four of them and uh we'll get rid of the ones that we think won't make as much money and that's just the problem with the gunslinger is the ip is not as recognizable as um as uh uh lord of the rings which they're also developing and they're also developing wheel of time which is really iconic and and the thing about wheel of time is that its fantasy world is a bit more consistent than the dark tower which is tonally all over the place yeah so um so i think that for them it was i'm sure that they didn't really give a shit about quality um i think for them it was probably just a we can't have this many fantasy series here you know i think it it arrived at the the maybe the right place at the wrong time you know because I mean, just yesterday, it's kind of serendipitous this all happened, but Akiva Goldsman actually talked about the the movie. Did he um, really? I didn't yeah, see Yeah, there was a quote that came out yesterday. And Did he say, I'm a hack and I ruined it? <laughs> no, he said, he said oh. I have a lot of, reg- this is what he said. I have a lot of regret about the parts that didn't work out. Our best versions of that existed well before the television movie crossovers and streaming were a thing. I have a lot of affection for the books that didn't end up on screen in the 2017 movie, The Dark Tower. And Ron Howard had this idea of what could be done across platforms. He didn't touch the movie, but sometimes things slip away. And then he says, there are things about that film I still admire. And Idris Elba played a really wonderful role in. I think there are too many different point of views, mine included, when it came to figuring out how to tell a cogent story on screen. And we could have done better. I actually think all their point of views involved in that project thwarted this project because it became Mm -hmm. like you have this thing that actually really fucking works and this is what happens so much when you you know deal with suits in in the entertainment industry is that they go "Eh, this is getting too complicated and then they walk and i think that's kind of what happened here where it was just like well you know we got this thing you know there's a lot of public uh you know it's just just not, not the right time right now even if it was a great product you know, it's like, well, how are we going to sell that? You know, how are we going to get around the idea that, you know, we had this movie that came out two years ago? How are we going to do that? And I think that probably had a lot to do with it. And I probably think a lot of it had to do with the fact that like Amazon, even though they have billions of dollars, infinite amount of money, they, I, I think they are pouring so much money into this fucking Lord of the Rings show that I could care less about. But you know, <laughs> anyway. Justin, you know, we've been kind of bummer central in terms of oh no this will never be seen and i can't believe we're not getting more and obviously we should be upset because this is a good product but at the end of the day like the biggest thing to take away from this is that for the last 
40 some odd years, people have been saying that you cannot adapt the Dark Tower. Mm -hmm. But after seeing this, I truly believe that you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I, I do believe that this will happen eventually in some, in some form. But the curse that we have is that yeah. whatever we see, we will always say, I think Glenn Mazaros was better. Yeah. <laughs> is that what yeah. if? It, yeah. Right? It'll be like, maybe Glenn would have done a better well, job with this from what we saw. I but nobody else will have that comparison. I yeah. think the people that tackle this next start with drawing of the three mm. and make it something that's more accessible. So it's like, if you don't like Westerns, you don't, that's, that's okay. Cause that's only one of the four stories we're telling in this. Right. And right. you, you can basically start with Eddie or something, you know what I mean? So basically you, you have all the, all the things there, but then all of a sudden they start connecting like, like bottle yeah. episodes and stuff like that. Well, something cause like, you know, and I try to think they try to do that with the movie with it focusing more on, on the boy. That's such a huge mistake like, to me though. That's yeah. a mistake. This is Roland's story. Yeah. And, and I think that he has got to be the center. Well, Glenn thought the same thing, Justin. <laughs> well, here, here's he the big, right. here's the takeaway I thought about, uh, because look, if you really think about it, this is a deconstruction of the dark tower series. And, what was the most recent deconstruction we had of a, a Stephen King series? There was The Stand. And I think you had a lot of people that were, you know, that loved that work, that loved that source material. And you can see a lot of that love in The Stand uh, miniseries in ways that we outlined in the whatever 50,000 hours that we were dedicated to it. But um, <laughs> I think what you could see here is that this is, this is coming from a person that really understood that in a way that like there's a lot of love in this but there's a lot of like understanding too mm -hmm. and with with glenn's deconstruction i think what you see here is that he wasn't even just trying to adapt the story but he's almost kind of fixing it because mm -hmm. i think when you read a lot of the dark like we've talked about in this episode that even when you start with the gunslinger you're like ah eh, you know i'm not really on board with roland i'm on board with roland here and in a way that I'm not really exactly when I'm reading the gunslinger. And like, I feel like I get a little more heart. I feel like I get a little more depth. And I think that he was actually looking at the greater picture here and almost kind of wiring it in a way that he was kind of putting the bulletin boards up and just feeling it, figuring out like, all right, what piece can I take here that will work here? And I can evolve that and I could expand upon these characters and I can make sure that this character informs that. And you're going to get, you're going to hear all of that in the interview that when we talked to you, him. Yeah. Mike, you took the words right out of my mouth because there is so much story spread across these seven books, yeah. plus Jericho Hill, plus, I almost said Jericho Mile, Jericho Hill, plus went through the okay. keyhole. Like you said, you throw it all out there and you don't have to take everything. Mm -hmm. You don't have to feel like you, you're, you're handcuffed to every line because guess what? What works on the page does not always work mm -hmm. on the screen. Yeah. And I think we talked about that in our Desperation episode, Randall. It's like, just because yeah. you're a great novelist does not make you, does not make you a great screenwriter. Right. And sometimes you just have to figure out, yeah, take this, don't take that, move this up four novels or four episodes. And I think for the most part, it does work here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it hurts even more the fact that like everything else really does work, you know, like the cast, the, you know, the cast gels, you know, the world breathes, the, there's a heart behind this narrative that beats like there's a, there's a conviction. And I think that's what kills me the most is that when you finish mm -hmm. this pilot, you're just like, there's a vision here and, and it's like, and they just immediately shut the eyes. Like, it's just, I don't know, it's tragic. It's it's one of those what ifs my, that I'm always going to think about. Like My, my biggest disappointment uh, walking out of the episode was, where, where was Misty? Where was Musty, the, the cat? 
Let me get to see the cat. I want to see that weird Bottle cat. Episode with episode four. I want to see the that weird cat with multiple appendages. Cat. Hey, you got the snake. You can't get the I know. Too. I was like, really Ir- Ermot really did it for me. I want to, I'm going to get like a tattoo of Ermot on my neck. Well, where was Christine? You know, like from, from I would love cat. it if you had a snake tattooed on your neck. When they did the close Christine. up. Oh, 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 oh couple. Oh, what oh, were God, you one thing I, I forgot to miss. My joke was going to be, yeah, Christine was in the bone here. You didn't see it. Um, but <laughs> if you noticed, of course, everybody listening is not going to give a shit. So you're never going to see this. When Stephen is, is gone back to Gilead and is like telling people what's happened, if you look off in the far, far distance, it looks like the Brooklyn Bridge is there. Oh, that's mm. cool. So watch oh, that again. I think I'll they're leaving from that. New York. Oh, also, yeah. some another little little detail. When they show up at Gilead, they're tapping the throat. Did you guys yes. notice that? Yeah. And that's they right do a good out job of the book. Yeah. Of incorporating all the dialogue, yeah. like clearing it in the path long days pleasant nights quartet say and glenn's got glenn's got other he kind of details some other really 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 deep easter eggs that he put into it that um that again you don't need to know them to enjoy it but they are things that are really really satisfying for uh the dark tower is it that they use the word cunny twice (laughs) (laughs) seriously that is good oh no no but um (laughs) but again yeah you can access it it's two hour interview uh and really great we also talk about his uh shining prequel script that never got made unfortunately Mm -hmm. the overlook and um yeah he has a lot of great things to say about both and we also just talk about king in general he's a really cool guy he also worked on the shield which uh, a lot of shield heads in this love the shield so um and and also walking dead and uh so yeah so this was really fun i'm glad we got to talk about it and we hope one day that you guys get a chance to see it because it really does deserve to be seen by a bigger audience but obviously that's not up to glenn that is up to uh you know jeff bezos's evil demon clawed hands and uh maybe one day he'll he'll unleash this upon the public maybe his ex-wife got the rights and we can (laughs) ask her let's see it it sounds like an entourage episode Uh, (laughs) maybe once they put chips in our heads he'll be able to beam it directly into our brains so hopefully that'll happen well boys this was fun uh let's do a little sign off uh long days and pleasant pleasant You've made it to the end of another bloody, disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody, disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.